Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder. Today, I'm joined by Chris Cartman. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Ethan. How are you? I am doing pretty well. I'm also joined by Noah Furtado. Noah, how are you doing today? Oh, Ethan came to me second this time. Appreciate it, man. I'm doing good. I always go to you last or something. It's literally just how the Zoom's configured. So maybe you join later. I don't know. Something along that line. But anyways, I'm also joined by Cole Bradley, who gets the privilege of being last today in my introduction. Cole, how are you doing today? Thanks, Ethan. I'm doing well. I hope all is well with you. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit of football. As we always do, ASU lost 42-25 to away against USC. ASU is now 1-4 for the first time since 1976, which, to give a little bit of context, Apple Computer Company was being formed in 1976, and the film Rocky was released in the United States in 1976. So it's been a while since ASU has started 1-4, but let's get a little bit into the game against USC. Noah, we'll go to you first, since you like to be going to first. What were your thoughts about the game as a whole? You guys, all three of you guys, were at the Coliseum to watch it. Yeah, um, you know, the environment was was rocking. I think ASU fed off of it, honestly, uh, to open the game. They came and, and were kind of going, uh, to some extent, blow for blow uh, with USC's offense, uh, which was extremely good. They were probably going to go four for four on touchdowns and their drives in the first half uh, if it wasn't for a penalty. Uh, late in the second quarter, but ASU they they really were able to they were able to establish the run um, much better than the Utah game, which was obviously what they need to do on a consistent basis, not just you know in this matchup, but overall that's the strength of that offense. And off of that, Emory Jones was able to play uh, pretty efficient um, for the game, but especially in the first half, um, going nine for eleven, he was uh, he showed that you know, some of the limitations with uh, staying in the pocket and, you know, sort of limiting his running ability, whether that was his decision or that of uh, uh, the play calling and, and the coaching, uh, he was able to get out of the pocket, scramble for some positive gains and sort of keep the defense modest to that part of his game. And I think that really balanced out that uh, offensive attack for ASU for, for the defensive side. Um, Donnie Henderson, he mentioned there were some positives to be taken away just based off of some of perhaps the, the team camaraderie that he saw, uh, communication, competitiveness, things of that nature. But as far as the numbers went, they were they were not very good. And I, I don't think you'd expect them to be against such a high-powered offense that uh, USC brings to the field. They only punted once the entire game, uh, you know, missed another touchdown opportunity early in the second half with uh, – a Caleb Williams interception is first of the season that, you know, they were going in for another score. So, you know, the defense wasn't, at, wasn't very impressive. Uh, they've switched up some things in the second half to sort of help out um, with, uh, you know, some pacing issues, you know, they brought more blitzes, got a little bit of aggressive there, but um, things ultimately stalled out uh, those last two quarters on both sides of the ball, the offense, uh, I mentioned Jones, he, he played pretty solid for the game, but his effectiveness definitely dropped down uh, from the first half. He was nine for 11 in the first two quarters and 14 for 21 in the next two. Uh, through a last minute interception, that wasn't too big of a deal. Um, but the fact that, uh, at least in Sean Guano's words, he was uh, 
sort of running an offense that was playing from behind, uh, especially since, you know, they lost a couple opportunities on a six and out and three and out drive to open the second half. And USC outside of that interception was, was continuing to roll on their end. Uh, it, it sort of limited, I guess, uh, how much he could do given that he's been used to throwing and sort of being a contributor through the air off of a rushing attack. That's been overall pretty good outside of the Utah game. So I, I guess that would sum up some of my takeaways overall. Cole, you were there as well. What were your general thoughts on this game? I mean, outside of what Noah said, I, I, and I, I think I speak for everyone here. ASU definitely impressed me. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I will be, I will be the first to take the fall and say that I, I definitely had drastically low expectations for them in this game. And they definitely came out and proved me, me wrong. At least um, I thought the first half was probably as good of a half, if not better than what they've played this entire year. Um, the play calling was much different. We were actually joking around and said who kidnapped Glenn Thomas at one point. Um, it was, it, it just was that different. Um, and even some of the defensive stuff that Donnie Henderson was doing with the blitzes, some of the stunts that we saw, um, even though it didn't work out, it's, it's, it's those little things that you kind of take away and you say, well, you know, maybe they can build off of this and, you know, hopefully for their sake, it makes a difference in the long term. But um, I'd say obviously the most impressive thing was just how, how well the offense responded, um, or sort of built off of, you know, the, the initial, um, stuff that we saw against Utah, um, in Sean Aguano's first game, um, with some of the RPO stuff, the quick game, um, even getting the running backs a little bit more involved through the air. The first, uh, uh, the first touchdown, um, for ASU on that, uh, wheel route from Valaday. Uh, that was as good of a play, I think, as I've seen ASU run all year. Um, so it, it's those little things that I think stood out to me the most. Ultimately, I think USC's overall depth and just um, the way, especially they they operate on offense, sort of prevailed in the end and was a little too much um, for ASU. And then obviously, you know, ASU kind of stalled out in the second half offensively. But I think I think the biggest thing is just how 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 well they performed in the first half as opposed to really any other half this season. I thought what stood out to me really was ASU's aggressiveness uh, and physicality. They, the Herm Edwards era, I think everyone knows the hallmark was a conservative nature on the offensive side of the football. It was very ball control. Let's run it. Uh, try to play some good defense, hang in there, try to be around late in the in, in games, try to have a chance to win games. You had Zach Hill come in and say, oh, we want to throw the ball 60% of the time, never got even close to 50% of the time. Herm Edwards said, got to be able to score 35 points a game to win in the Pac-12. His team's never even got close to that in, in recent years. 2020 being a sort of a rare, you know, little exception because of the 70 point game that ASU had. Um, I I just saw in this game that Sean Iguano's whole statement about trying to be aggressive um, proved to be the case. Like ASU 
was really firing off the line of scrimmage. I saw pancake blocks by Ben Scott with Darius Henderson running his guy 20 yards downfield. Isaiah Glass had some dominant blocks. It didn't look like the offensive line that we had seen in recent games in the first half. Um, play calling. Definitely there was a much more focused emphasis on getting the ball quickly out of Emory Jones' hands to his playmakers. I had said um, against Utah, the ASU was going to need Emory Jones to probably throw 15 completions of 10 yards or less. In this game, Emory Jones had 23 completions. Oh, vast majority of them were 15 yards or less. Like So they didn't run the ball nearly as much. They were They went to five wide early on. They got the ball uh, to their running backs, the wheel route, Cole mentioned. Uh, ASU's some of their best players on, on offense are Valaday and Gata. So you have to figure out ways that you take advantage of that. I've been saying for a lot of years now that defending running backs out of the backfield is one of the things that defenses do uh, less well than others in the Pac-12 and often do quite poorly uh, in the Pac-12, really across college football. Um, I felt like the spreading around of the of the football was uh, very well done, and uh, the the ability to get um, the, the some mobility of Emory Jones and 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 sort of letting him know it's okay for you to go scramble and try to run for first downs when you don't see something there. Uh, it was sort of both of those things were were very obviously the case. And I, I just, I, I can't believe that it isn't Sean Aguano who is challenging and giving his expectation to Glenn Thomas that has led to these changes. And they were things that we saw, that we pointed out like repeatedly on this podcast in the Devil's Sanctuary on our message board and on Twitter throughout games, I'm saying, okay, ASU's got to get the ball out a lot quicker. Uh, they have to be able to spread it around more. They have to be able to get Emory Jones moving moving more. They have to they should throw the ball to their running backs. Like All these things, and we saw all of them. And by the way, ASU was not sacked once in the first half, right? Now, second half, uh, things got, sort of changed. I felt like they got a little bit – they did regress a little bit with the play calling, got a little bit conservative um at, at, at spots they also were pressured more they handled the pressure quite poorly especially going into the fourth quarter when usc i think had four sacks um by that point it was pretty clear that they, that emory jones was going to be dropping back and throwing the ball a lot and the predictability of what was gonna happen on a play-to-play -play basis made for easier time for Alex Grinch and USC's defense. Um, so I agree that I thought that ASU would get embarrassed in this game and that didn't happen. Uh, but I think that primarily it didn't happen because we saw pretty significant differences in how ASU approached the game, especially on offense, but even on defense to some degree, they brought more blitz pressures. They were much more aggressive with their pass rush, even on early downs and uh, trying to get after Caleb Williams, who is a tremendous quarterback. But I was literally geeking out about how talented that he is. His arm strength, 
phenomenal. He made the flat-footed throw over the head of Ro Torrance from the end zone that nobody expected. Then later on, he makes a throw from the the, the far hash, the wider hash in college, all the way to the almost to the to the other boundary, the opposite boundary on an out route that was that was incredible. Uh, his ability to to withstand uh, pressure, guys draped over him you know, climbing all over him, basically, and not, him not getting sacked and not being a big guy, whatever he is, 6'1 and 210 or 15 pounds or something like that. Um, I just – I felt like I was watching one of the best quarterbacks that I've ever seen in my life in person in a college football game, somebody who will go on and be probably a top-five pick in two years in the NFL draft, and he's 19 years old. And so, uh, you know, but – but all of that said, ASU's defense did well with the exception of not being able to get some sacks that it was in position for. And then literally on four or five third down plays. If ASU had just had more success on three, four, maybe five third down plays, uh, the entire game would be different uh, in the fourth quarter. I'm reasonably confident. And ASU maybe wouldn't even had a chance to win. Um, so this was an excellent performance by by ASU relative to what had been the case in recent weeks. Um, but of course, ASU is still not nearly of the caliber of USC and wasn't able to put together a complete game. All right. So Caleb Williams, you guys might touch on him a little bit more, but of course he was very good. But you guys did touch a little bit about kind of almost a tale of two halves, maybe not exactly a tale of two halves, but we'll talk about it that way in this podcast, just to make it easier on you guys and the listeners in the first half, ASU seemed to be a strong team that was competitive with USC in the second half. It dropped off a little bit. So let's go to you first Cole about this, but in the first half, what did you see maybe from the start for ASU? What worked, what didn't work from just that first half of play specifically? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of touched on it a little bit earlier, but just in Chris talked a little bit about it as well, just the, the aggressiveness and the play calling and just, the, you know, the, you know, prioritizing getting the ball out quick into the play in, into your playmakers hands. Um, even the even the blocking was so much better. That was probably the biggest thing. The blocking uh, was much better, both run and pass in the first half. The, the stats back it up, too, obviously. Um, than it was in the second. So I think the offensive line came out a little bit juiced um, and it definitely translated to, you know, some, some quality play um, that just didn't really exist in the second half. Um, but also again, that, that play calling just was a lot different. I think if I remember correctly, ASU's first drive of the second half was just, it, it was a lot more of the same. It was, you know, it was, it was a, it was a rung play, I think on first and second down, and then it was a quick, it was like a six play drive or it might've been a three and out. I don't remember, but it was, it was one of those first couple drives in the second half that started off and looked a lot similar to what has sort of existed in the past. So they came out with less intensity in the second than they did in the first, um, didn't really um, stick to the game plan, so to speak, as much as I think they, they said that they were planning on doing um, in the first half or after the first half. Uh, but those were the biggest things. I think it was the blocking for sure. And then, you know, just the overall play calling. Noah, we'll go to you specifically about the first half. What did you see from ASU's play? 
Well, I explained a little bit earlier. They, after basically going through like one of their worst games offensively in a, quite a while, um, especially on the ground, they had six rushing yards by the end of their game against Utah. That was the lowest total in program history. And so when you have a guy like Xavier Valade, who's that active FBS rushing leader and a very serviceable, high potential backup in Daniel Ngata, uh, it's not great. Um, you, they needed to, regardless of some of the, the changes in aggressiveness and, and things like that, Aguano still understands the scheme. Like it leans to the running backs, really setting the tone, establishing some momentum, and then allowing you know some opportunities uh, in other ways to be like branched off off of that. And so Xavier Valade, Daniel Ngata, they kind of split carries more or less in, in the first half. Valade had seven and Ngata had five. Uh, Valade was especially good, um, 8.1 yards per carry. Uh, all the things that you've that you expect from him based off of performances that he's given uh, perhaps outside of that Utah performance, which he was, he was still pretty decent. And so whenever they can have that in their back pocket, it allows Emory Jones to then build off of that. He was able to add to the ground game, which was not the case beforehand. Um, and when he's sort of able to expand, from just sitting in the pocket, going through his reads, which he showed he was able to do pretty efficiently throughout that first half. Like I said, nine for 11, 117 yards and a touchdown. That, that, was, that was great. Um, one thing with, I guess, some of the receiving production was they spread it around. Not more than one receiver had more than two catches. Uh, that was a good sign. I think, you know, once they started into the second half and they didn't see the kind of success that they were hoping to replicate from the first two quarters. Some of that was basically having the receivers take a little bit too much off of the running backs because of the way in which that game was going trailing, having to play to try and cut into deficits and things like that. So, you know, as far as the first half is concerned, the success that they saw was basically a, a formula that they've used before, but they were also able to throw in some other things. So they had the running game going. That's something they'll always need. They had Emory Jones being able to go out of the pocket, scramble and use his legs, which is something that he as a dual threat quarterback needs in addition to some of the success that he's been able to show through the air and the receivers, not too many drops. They show that they're able to really help out Jones uh, get open. And especially if Jones was able to extend plays that also helped out. So obviously I sort of gave a summer summary of what I thought about the first half initially, but some other things that I sort of took from that, from that game were uh, Brian Thompson's involvement. I thought that was a big development. This is a guy who was ASU's leading returning receiver in terms of his career catches and yardage who had academic uh, eligibility issues that, um, prevented ASU from knowing whether or not they'd be able to count on him um, at the outset of this season. And that that was very limiting to an offense that already was extremely uh, challenged with its experience 
in production historically at wide receiver, especially when the their top addition, uh, Cam Johnson from Vanderbilt, wasn't even able to uh, to win a starting job and has been very lightly used uh, this season. So the Brian Thompson being able to kind of get get a little bit going and ASU using him, especially with the fact that Andre Johnson hasn't really done as much in recent weeks after a promising start against NAU. Uh, I think that sort of rounds out their a little bit of their offensive uh, capability. The uh, Geo Sanders, I've been saying that the ASU needs to try to get the ball quickly to Geo Sanders in uh, in the slot. And they did that in this game with some run replacement type stuff, which they really need to do more of. I would even lean in more to throwing the, the ball to the running backs on wheels and mesh concepts, swings, um, screens. Um, I think that they can get the ball more to Elijah Badger. There's really no reason, even in a game like this, why Elijah Badger should really only have two or three catches or targets. You know, I don't know, maybe he had like four targets or something like that, but th- that's not, you know, if Emory Jones is throwing the ball 30-something times, Elijah Badger better get targeted at least a handful of times, at least five or six times, probably more than that. Uh, and he has in earlier games. He's got a high use, very high usage rate going into this one, but probably not enough. Um, and uh, Emory Jones, when you look at some of the things that he's done, I just cannot reiterate enough that it's when he's outside the pocket making off-platform throws and doing things that are not where he's confined and restricted, but that's kind of when he tends to look his best. Uh, he's dynamic and you want to sort of encourage him to be uh, in those situations. I, I, I still don't think that there's enough sort of bootlegs and rollouts and misdirections that incorporate options for Emory Jones. Um, but all of that said, you can't really argue whatsoever with what ASU did in the first half of that game from a productivity standpoint, moving the football, had it not been for a blocking, was it a blocking downfield penalty but that uh, that led ASU to not uh, score a touchdown on one drive where they ended up with a field goal. I don't know, maybe it wasn't a blocking downfield, but it was some penalty that uh, that moved ASU back and then resulted in, in only a, a field goal. I, I, one of the keys that we talked about going into this game was ASU needed to prevent USC from converting red zone trips into touchdowns. And that didn't happen whatsoever in this game. You know, I, I think it maybe happened one time in the game. Did USC have a field goal? I don't, I don't, off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember, but I don't think so, right? They had, they had only touchdowns, right? Two touchdowns, first quarter, second quarter touchdown, third quarter touchdown, fourth quarter, two touchdowns. So, the, and, and on, on red zone trips, uh, USC was six of seven. And this was a team that going into the season, going into this game, was the worst in the Pac-12 at uh, converting red zone trips into points and not, wasn't particularly great at converting red zone trips into touchdowns. But ASU didn't force them into any field goals, and part of that was the uh, lack of third down success. So USC uh, in the first quarter um, was 4-4 on third downs, and, um, and then in the second quarter – USC was one of two 
on third down. So that sort of set the tone for the rest of the game, whereas ASU's offense did more than enough to be in a, a good position, maybe even a dominant position, had the defense done its job, the defense was not able to get those third down stops and was not able to force USC into trying to kick field goals uh, as opposed to getting touchdowns. To, to Chris's point about uh, Brian Thompson in particular, I know he talked about a lot of different things there, but but Thompson in particular, his performance was so surprising even after two quarters. He had he had one big catch for 34 yards at the half, one target, and like out of nowhere, he led the team in targets, receptions, yards, the whole bit throughout you know the latter stages uh, of a big game, a pretty closely contested game outside or, or out of the locker rooms uh, from halftime. So, you know, if you asked us maybe a month or two ago about Thompson, showed him showed his numbers from this past game, it, it probably wasn't going to be necessarily a big shock. But the fact that, you know, as Chris laid out, there were some developments in terms of concerns with academic ineligibility and things like that, that sort of distracted um, his development throughout camp and, and, and all of these things. This could be a good sign for that wide receiver core that is, is especially thin now with Zeke Freeman likely being out for the year. They have like seven scholarship wide receivers there. Uh, one thing with uh, Elijah Badgers to provide some, some stats on it. He had two catches in the first half of that game, two, two catches, two targets. Um, doesn't get better than that in terms of how much uh, he was given the ball. And then he finished the game with just as many catches and targets. Um, so as far as that goes, I think while they do want to spread the ball around, you know, get the running backs involved, which has been successful so far, I think, you know, understanding where, you know, your most dynamic receivers are, Brian Thompson, if he can get into the mix alongside Elijah Badger, those two seem to be the, the leading receivers at the outside positions heading into camp. Um, and, you know, judging from Thompson's performance, if he can really start to become consistent in that way, um, he's shown that he's had the ability to really make an impact um, in individual performances in the past. That could be a positive sign for this passing attack that has really been up and down and up and down uh, throughout this, you know, early stretch, these first five games. Well, you speak of up and down, and you could probably consider the first half an up and a second half down for ASU. Cole, we'll go to you first again for this, but what changed in the second half? Why couldn't ASU continue to have some of the same success that they were having in the first half in the second half? What, what changed? What made it so that it was more difficult for them? Was it things that they did that caused them to be less successful or did USC do things that caused them to be less successful? I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, I will say, I mean, USC's defense looked just airtight in the second half, uh, just much different, especially up front, um, forcing a lot more pressure. It was evident in the, in, in the five sacks, I think it was that they got um, in the second half alone. Um, and again, it was some of that blocking as well. There was a lot of breakdowns that led to quick sacks. Emory had nowhere to go. Um, especially there was, the, there was one third down in particular that started the fourth quarter. Um, it was a pretty critical um, third down. And uh, Emory, Emory basically took the snap and didn't even have really a second before he, before he was taken to the ground. Um, there was just a complete breakdown up front. 
um, and he had nowhere to go with it. Um, so I think it was a little bit of, of that for sure. Uh, the effectiveness in the run game wasn't as prevalent as well. Noah mentioned the, the usage of both Ngata and Valade in the first half, which is pretty prevalent. That didn't really um, jump out at me as much in the second half. Um, I think that kind of went by the wayside a little bit. And then, um, you know, they were forced to throw a lot more and, uh, you know, obviously playing from behind. Uh, so especially that final drive where they actually got into um, I, I, either just outside the red zone or in the red zone when Emory threw the pick that basically iced the game away. Like, you know, that's that's sort of what all the, what that all comes down to, especially when a team like USC is pulling away like that. So I think it was a little bit of that. But, um, yeah, things just didn't really go their way in terms of the play calling, I'd say. And then also just the the blocking up front um, uh, was was stifled uh, heavily uh, by that pretty dominant uh, USC front, I'd say, in the second half. Look, I, I think uh, USC outcoached ASU in the second half, point blank. Uh, I think uh, ASU outcoached USC maybe in the first half or at least matched USC's coaching. Um, but the, the protection issues were caused largely by USC bringing some amoeba front defenses where ASU didn't handle uh, with any sort of clear understanding who needed to block who on some of them. Like it, it, it should have been, uh, basically they should have been, as they're dropping into their pass sets, they're uh, taking zones of, of whoever decides to rush in within the zones. And you had guys just literally letting, letting someone go by them and blocking no, nothing. Um, I just think that ASU didn't, and then ASU didn't really adjust to that. Just the same thing that we saw with ASU's inability to adjust to Eastern Michigan's rushing attack. Second half of that game wasn't there. Uh, so I think you have to be, you have to give credit what credit's due with coaching. Uh, they, they, they improved their game plan on offense. Uh, I thought Donnie Henderson was smart to bring more blitz pressures in the second half. Um, mixed success, but I don't think it cost them anything. And uh, I just think they had been extremely uh, overly conservative. Maybe part of that was, again, Herm Edwards, sort of uh, his, his personal, you know, his style, his comfort, his imprint um, on the team earlier this season. But for all the talk about, you know, we're – how man, you know, focus there on man coverage and playing, playing press and bump and, uh, and, you know, having confidence in their ability to take guys out with their, with their defensive backs. They really didn't do any of that. They played a lot of just a ton of off zone cover three predictable coverages. So I thought that that was, it was good that they mixed up their coverages and their looks defensively tried to do something different because what they did in the first half didn't work. Didn't really have any, didn't really have a lot more success uh, overall. I would say, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe slightly more, but um, USC scoring 21 points each, each half and the third downs um, just pretty much a disaster. Uh, you, you just, you can't, you just have no chance to win when your third down defense is so unsuccessful and your red zone defense is so unsuccessful playing against a team like this. Unless your offense is just on, just unbelievable, 
which of course ASU is not remotely close to unbelievable on 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 offense. It is in fact uh, below average at best, maybe even mediocre. Not in this game, but overall mediocre. Probably eleventh best in the conference on offense. Um, only better than Colorado, which is just a travis mockery or whatever whatever you want to say i mean it's like the worst offense in power five football plus worse than like half of g5 football um not surprisingly one of the other i guess maybe four uh power five teams that have now moved on from their head coach it's like two were asu and colorado the two worst in the pac-12 um so there, there's a lot more that they have to be able to do to get better at from a coaching standpoint they don't have a lot, enough margin for error with their players right now. And um, they got a little bit too conservative, I think, with their offense. And then they didn't execute in the run game. And they didn't fire off. And they weren't as physical. They didn't really take it to USC as much. Part of that maybe is some different fronts and things that USC did to try to gum up the blocking that kind of were successful in ASU not being as quickly adaptive enough as was needed in the, in the game. Noah, is there anything else that you think you can add to what changed in the second half versus the first half for ASU? Sure. Um, you know, Aguano highlighted the first couple drives uh, to open the third quarter when they had an opportunity with a touchdown to take a lead. They were still down four points. Um, the drive, USC drive in between those two series uh, was the one that ended with the Caleb Williams interception in the red zone. And so they sort of caught a break there. Um, but to just look at it a little bit closely, um, Aguano sort of attributed the second half changes offensively that, you know, sort of led to their struggles to not being able to really rely on their ground game as much as perhaps they were able to throughout the first half because they were playing from behind and, you know, but the fact that they were still only down four points, those first couple of drives makes it, you know, just as important to really get started quickly there so that you're not in that position, you know, two, three series in. Valade, the first play was a run to Valade, and it was, you know, a loss of one yard. And it seems like just as far as the play calling went, uh, it really sort of pushed them back uh, away from perhaps, you know, wanting to create a long drive, get the ground game reestablished. Um, because they had a couple passes after that. One was incomplete and another one was complete. So they actually got um, a pretty good conversion on 30 and 11 to Brian Thompson. That was the second completion of the night. But then they went back to Valaday, a, a menial two-yard gain on that one. And then, you know, as we've talked about the pass protection issues, Emory Jones was sacked for a, a loss of eight, third and 16, had to go into an obvious passing down was not successful in terms of getting any yardage fourth and 16 had to punt it away. Um, and then they had another opportunity in, you know, that second drive after the interception to really get a sort of a reset. Uh, and the first play there was a good sort of short completion to Gio Sanders, six yards. And they gave it back to Valaday. Valaday couldn't get a game there. I mean, they, they really couldn't get the rushing attack going early enough. And that sort of, led allowed USC to really put uh, ASU into a box that they could really uh, tee off on because by the end of the game, Valade had just about 13 rushing attempts. He had seven in the first half, six in the second half, and Ngata didn't get any by the time that, you know, throughout this entire second half. 
And that really limited them when they weren't able to utilize their backs in that way. And so, you know, those series were crucial to really setting the tone. And from that point on, USC sort of dictated the pace, their defense uh, against ASU's offense and did what I actually expected them to do coming into the contest. The fact that they didn't have any sacks in the first half was was pretty surprising considering, um, you know, my expectations. I did not see the ASU offensive line considering some of their struggles uh, throughout the first several games, being able to handle a lot of the sort of the stunts and the tricks that USC tries to do up front to, to really confuse the offensive line and get to the quarterback. Um, and ultimately those things came, you know, came through with the five sacks in the second half. So, you know, ASU, they, they, there was positives, but there also were some missed opportunities, like crucial, just timely moments that they weren't able to take advantage of. All right. So it was definitely a first and a second half and some struggles, but some good things. There's definitely been change over the last little bit more than two weeks that Sean Aguano has been at the helm for ASU football. And there's been some differences between what he does and what Herm Edwards did while being in charge of the team. Cole, we'll go to you first. What kind of differences have you seen from Sean Aguano being in charge? And just maybe what have you seen in general from him being in charge these last couple of weeks? I mean, the obvious things are are the overall intensity, whether that's in practice or even, you know, what what you'll see over the course of these last two games. Um, that's the biggest thing I'd say is, um, you know, he's he definitely is trying to uh, get the absolute best out of his players, but also trying to find a balance between that and, um, you know, making sure that um his players understand that I'm not doing this to berate you or anything like that. Like I, you know, you're, you're like my children, you know, I, I want to take care of you guys. I love you guys. Um, so trying to find that happy medium and, you know, he's noted quite a few times over the last couple of weeks, you know, he's received a little bit of backlash from it. Some players haven't really, you know, there's some guys who haven't really taken too kindly to it so far. And he's like, I think that's good. Like I welcome that. And, um, how much uh, that says about I'm going to I'm going to hold everyone accountable um, while also trying to make sure that you're improving um, and, you know, coming together as a unit. So I think that's been sort of impressive and something that uh, of note for sure. One of the biggest things, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the the player who was kicked out of practice that was previously pretty non-existent um, during her her Medwards's tenure. Uh, it seems like, and, you know, so a little bit of that as well. Uh, you know, it's, it's all, all from the little things you can see it. And then like, you know, whether it's an in-game situation or if it reflects in the play, um, all those things kind of go back to what we sort of see in practice with just the way that he orchestrates things and the way he's trying to hammer home this, you know, you know, constantly being on your toes, constantly hustling, constantly giving a hundred percent, um, and anything less is, is unacceptable. And I want you to get out of my way. Um, and I honestly think that, you know, for a team that's in a situation like ASU is right now, that's probably for the better. Noah, what can you add in terms of what you've seen with Sean Aguano leading this team and, and what differences or you might've seen in these past few weeks? It's the sense of accountability. Um, that you get from hearing him talk at his weekly presser 
um, every week. And then even after the game, talking about what went wrong and sort of being um, transparent uh, about those things. Uh, that's that's the stark difference that I've seen. We, we talked about on the podcast when, uh, when Herm Edwards was still the head coach. Um, there was one topic about him not questioning Emory Jones's uh, decision-making in a given game and how like he sort of just trusts him. And that's, that's sort of his job is to trust him. But we, we question that we, you know, as, as the head coach, he's your player, he's one of your leaders, but he's also very crucial to the success of the offense. So why aren't you sort of guiding him towards uh, some different areas in which he can succeed more than he had at that point in time. And, you know, this past presser with Aguano, uh very openly sort of spoke about some of the things that he's trying to get changed um, based off of, you know, things that work, things that didn't work, especially offensively with Glenn Thomas. He said he's confident in him. So he, he was able to sort of in, initiate that boat of confidence uh, into Glenn Thomas, but also, you know, bring in the point where he's like, I still need some different things from him. I still would like him to, to match my, you know, the, what I'm trying to get at with, you know, aggressiveness and, and asserting, um, you know, on both the offensive and the defensive side, but especially offensively. So just being as transparent as he was there to say that he's, he's confident in him, he trusts him, but there's also a, a sort of a dialogue that you can tell uh, between Aguano, the head coach, the leader of this team, and, you know, the offensive coordinator, that's just one example of sort of some the, the kind of control, the grip that Iguano has uh, on how he's trying to run things with this program and sort of get it get it moving in, in the right direction. And I think the fact that we sort of pulled out some positives from, you know, their four straight loss, it, it, spe- it, it speaks to because we're not we're not trying to necessarily sort of sway it that way. There definitely were some things to take away that were promising uh, and that sort of stems from at least, you know, most of them stems from Aguano being able to, to kind of steer this team by how active uh, he is with, with the coaches uh, and, and with the players, as we see, you know, at practices. One of the things I, I noticed uh, in this game was um, with Nesta Jade Silvera, who I, I think a lot of people probably saw that he had the moment where he sprayed Caleb Williams in the face with a water bottle. Um, he also has been enigmatic and he's a sort of a emotionally, uh, up and down guy with some of the things that happen on the field. And, um, he committed a penalty that was kind of a dumb penalty and he comes, is pulled off the field. Sean Aguano went right to him, grabbed his face mask with both hands, put his head his face directly in front of Nesta's face. And he said some things to him. And then Nesta, he sort of nodded his head and a little sheepish look. And then Aguano sort of patted him on the, the helmet and he went back to the, to the, to the bench. And my feeling is that um, ASU's discipline nosedived like off a cliff in uh, the period of time after um, the Danny Gonzalez, who was very sort of hard edged, aggressive, and uh, had had pretty um, high expectations from a discipline and accountability standpoint. After his departure and the departure of 
most of the offensive coaches from that staff. Uh, COVID probably had an impact on that team, not meeting regularly in person, doing everything on zoom. Um, and then it, it sort of took a year to sort of, and you only played four games in that 2020 season, maybe it took a year to a year and a half for the unraveling to really sort of happen and such that they even understood as a team, like what was taking place when then 2021, they're the most penalized team in all power five football and playing extremely undisciplined football um, with really bad uh, coaching decisions and disciplinary issues um, in 20 throughout that 2021 season, really with the embarrassing BYU performance um, as a highlight, as a low light, I should say, and then sort of continuing on. I, I feel like Aguano's trying to sort of wrestle ASU back from that, but it's a very difficult thing that you have to do when you're playing three ranked teams in a row and you also are trying to get down what you would need to do schematically and you need to uh, get players more um, physically prepared for what you're trying to do. And, and so um, I, I saw clear progress in this game against USC, but ASU is still clearly not among the top half of the Pac-12 teams albeit maybe capable of beating a much better team if everything sort of comes together. Yeah, and, and let's let's talk about that progress a little bit. We, at the beginning of the year, gave predictions in terms of what we expect the team to achieve. We gave records, we gave stats predictions, and all those sorts of things. Uh, but right now, ASU is one in four. It's a 14 point underdog against Washington at home this week. There's a real possibility that the team goes one in five for the first time since 1942. So that is something that's definitely happening right now. They may go one in five, but with the guano coming in, with those changes that you guys talked about, where we sit now, have your perspectives changed at all from what we might see of ASU in the next few months? Cole, we'll, we'll go to you first for this one. I mean, it's definitely been, I mean, just the overall energy and uh, the passion, I'd, I'd say, has probably been on a much higher level from what I have noticed since Iguano took over. But I, I think given the circumstances and the whole ASU has already kind of managed to, to sort of dig itself into, um, it's a little hard to have a changed perspective and outlook as, in terms of how the rest of the year is going to go. I, I mean – they weren't exactly aided by the fact that, you know, they, they made the coaching change right at the start of conference play um, against, you know, three, we're going on three really quality opponents, uh, really good teams um, to start things off, you know, that, that doesn't really help your, help your cause. Um, you probably would much prefer to have those teams a little bit more spread out. Um, but it, I think I think I would probably have to see how things go this week um, and then how they sort of respond after, after the halfway point um, to really have a changed outlook. But overall, I, I just don't, I think it's kind of too, I think at this point it's too late to see any, any massive changes um, in terms of expectations or just how the rest of the season will pan out for this team. I don't think it's really any different. I still have this team, um trending towards five and seven i'm at four and eight now 
um, with my record prediction there. Um, I just, if anything, if anything, it's not going to get uh, a lot better. Uh, it may get marginally better, but um, I don't, I don't see any, any drastic things improving um, for the rest of the year. Noah, what about you? Do you have any change of kind of your stance on the team versus the last time you gave your perspective on it? Well, my initial prediction was a five and seven record. Uh, that was a target. Definitely had the floor at four and eight and the ceiling at six and six. That sort of moved at least one game down for me um, on, on everything. I think, I think a floor would be, would be th three wins now. I think target is four wins and then the ceiling is five. Um, after they get past uh, their third ranked opponent in Washington, uh, they have a couple winnable games. Now they're on the road. They play Stanford at Stanford and Colorado at Co Colorado. Stanford, I think, is going to be a pretty tough matchup, uh, but again, winnable. In my opinion, right now where this team is at and sort of getting some positives out of a very tough matchup against USC, I think I would mark those up. I would mark the Colorado one up as, as a definite win. And then from there, you got Stanford. You know, I, I think I would mark that one up as a win as well. So that gives you three. UCLA, Washington State, Oregon State after that, very, you know, unlikely that they'll pull out those. UCLA is, is undefeated right now. Um, Washington State probably should be in the AP top 25. They're just outside of it with the most votes uh, among teams not in it. Oregon State, you know, they've had a tough, you know, stretch just because they they played USC and Utah back to back, but they're a really good team this year, much improved Arizona as well. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'd expect them to go four and eight. I think out of those, out of those games, you know, one win is, is probably plausible, especially because, you know, they, a couple of them are at home uh, in Tempe that helps to a certain degree. So, you know, as far as my expectations record wise, um, there could be some momentum, you know, that I can't really predict right now or project. Uh, but if they continue to move in this direction where it's, it's on a slight incline in terms of some of the things that we're seeing from Iguano culturally and trying to push, you know, day to day and practices and things like that, um, I'd expect them to go uh, four and eight with a floor of three and nine and a ceiling now at five and seven. That was my initial prediction. So let's look at the Pac-12 overall right now. ASU is clearly not as good a football team as USC, Utah, UCLA, Oregon, Washington, and Washington State. Um, that's half the Pac-12. ASU is better than Colorado, probably not worse than Stanford, uh, probably roughly equivalent to California and Arizona and probably not as good as Oregon State. Although with that game being at home, the ASU plays in that game, depending on what happens over the next couple of weeks, it's hard to say whether one team is going to be a strong favorite in that game. When you look at ASU's schedule, um, if they have another game of progress, another week of progress that leads to an even better performance against Washington, which I think is very possible, and I don't think Washington should be a 14-point 
favorite right now, which I think that it is. I that seems to be to be too much, especially because Washington's defense not that not really that good. Um, so yeah, I think I think ASU could uh, get some momentum, maybe even beat Washington. I don't I'm not saying I'm going to predict that to be the case, but would it be a shocker? Then Stanford and Colorado, that's sort of like the easiest game that ASU will have on its schedule. So they're both on the road, but there's potentially, I I could see ASU winning two of the next three games conceivably, maybe even three. So, you know, something kind of all fell together before ASU plays UCLA. If ASU has won multiple games going into UCLA in Tempe, that by no means is, is, is a game that's out of their realm of possibility at Washington state. I think that's probably their, their toughest matchup kind of, uh, on the, the, the second half of their schedule, uh, Oregon state at home, uh, ASU could conceivably win that game, but I'm not saying ASU would be the favorite in the majority of the, of the games. And then Arizona, that's a toss up game. So, um, I, out of those seven, I think ASU probably on average wins three of those games, maybe four of those games. Uh, three and a half might be a reasonable over under. Um, I think ASU is probably going to end up somewhere between four and eight and five and seven. And, uh, you know, I've, we've talked about this in the past, but ASU's not had a, a team that only won three games since 1994 that was uh, Jake Plummer's uh, sophomore season as a, as a starting quarterback and uh, sort of early in Bruce Snyder's tenure as the program had a lot of injuries they were young and they were sort of ramping up what they were going to become over the next couple of years ASU is not in anywhere near that sort of a shape right now um, they have obviously been trending down since the last year, which is kind of what makes this more problematic for the program than probably any point in time um, in at least the last uh, 25 years. So, uh, but that said, USC was a big improvement. It's very conceivable that the team could improve quite a bit more uh, in the next week or the next few weeks. and. we saw signs that maybe there is the possibility to put together a complete football game that actually looks really good against a decent opponent. So it looked to be a frustrating season under Herm Edwards that had not much kind of hope. There is some interest that brings along Sean Aguano and what they may be able to accomplish with him as head coach, at least interim head coach for now. But ASU, as we said, uh, is now one in four. They're now heading to number 21, Washington. So when they take on Washington, Chris, what injuries may they have that you know about? You've seen one practice this week, so maybe off of who's practiced in and just kind of anything that you know, what may they have injury-wise heading into that one? Right. So um, one of the ones that I think is most important is Des Holmes. Uh, We saw him leave the USC game in the last few minutes while the game was still going on to walk to the locker room on his own. He didn't practice today. Uh, so what that did was at right tackle, ASU had Emmett Boley practicing. Um, and then Isai Glass at left tackle. 
Um, of course, we know that Joey Ramos is out for the season, right? So if Des Holmes is out, that means that puts ASU into an extremely thin overall situation. Um, if it's offensive line, like I, there's a, a big drop off to whoever is the next player. Um, so that's that's a major thing. Also today, uh, we noticed that Anthony Cooper uh, did not practice, which is new, that's a new development. He of course uh, played against USC. Dylan Hall has been banged up, another defensive lineman, defensive end, and um, sort of that sort of led to ASU playing in concert with Omar Norman Lott, who's kind of getting working his way back into the flow, like he practice today but we didn't see him in 11 on 11s uh, after he got knocked out of the eastern uh, michigan game and then didn't play subsequently um in the last two weeks uh they been kind of so thin that they moved uh bj green to end which they've done a little bit here and there walk on bmon uh, miller also didn't practice he hasn't been pra- practicing or playing in recent weeks but um, as I said, Omar Norman Lott is trending in a direction to where I think maybe he could play this week. He's at least questionable for this week. Garrett Stansbury's had a hamstring injury, apparently, that he's missed the entire season with so far. But he is running around and looks like uh, he's getting a lot healthier and maybe could be ready to, to play if he's able to uh, in some time in the next week or two as well. Uh, of course, with ASU having the bye week coming up, I, I would say that those guys, from what they're doing right now, appear to be on a trajectory to be healthy enough to be uh, playing against Stanford, if not this week, um, against Washington. So we'll have to kind of just see what happens there. ASU not completely healthy, but there is still some interest for them heading into Washington. If you want any more about the USC game, though, there will be 10 takeaways on the site, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, there will also be multiple stories on the site about a lot of things. Coaching search is continuing to go on. We're continuing to give you guys coaching search profiles, so if you want to know about who could possibly be the next head coach for ASU, make sure to keep your eyes out for those as well as a lot of other topics that we'll be reporting on throughout the week. But we also head into Washington. Keep your eye out for the Washington first look. That will also be on the site uh, and we will also have a premium podcast for you on Thursday, previewing previewing that game as well as giving our picks for the Pac-12 for next weekend. So make sure to stay tuned to all of our content as ASU heads into game week against number 21, Washington. But for Chris Cartman, Noah Furtado, and Cole Bradley, I'm Ethan Ryder. We'll see you guys next time.